Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and I'd like to welcome you to this AUA Office of Education podcast on low testosterone. My co-host today is Dr. Ranjith Ramaswamy, Assistant Professor and Director of Reproductive Urology at the University of Miami. Today we're going to talk about the topic of low testosterone and talk about what it is, how it's measured, some of the symptoms associated with it, risks of low testosterone, and then some of the ways that we can increase testosterone, be it uh, natural ways or, uh, or hormone replacement. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Ramaswamy to our podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Nidhi, and uh, thanks to the AUA for uh, hosting the segment on uh, low testosterone and the uh, management of uh, low testosterone, or also now called as adult onset hypogonadism. You know, I think this is a really important topic and uh, something that's really not as well understood as, as I think it should be. Um, somewhat, I don't know if it's controversial or maybe confusing for those of us uh, who don't uh, deal with hypogonadism on a regular basis. So I'm going to start with a really simple question. What is low testosterone? So low testosterone or adult onset hypogonadism is, uh, is, a, com is a syndrome. And a syndrome is a combination of a uh, low blood test uh, along with symptoms. And when we talk about low blood test, the endocrine society defines the uh, low blood test as a low total testosterone measured on two separate occasions in the morning, preferably before 10 o'clock at, and they've defined it as less than 300 nanograms per deciliter. Unfortunately, there's lots of controversy about this 300 nanograms per deciliter because every laboratory, including the two large commercial labs in the country, Quest and LabCorp, have different reference ranges. Some def reference ranges go from 250 to 850, some go all the way from 350 to 1150. So um, I think uh, the consensus is that if the uh, testosterone level is low for uh, that reference laboratory, uh, then you should be considered to have a low testosterone level, whatever it is for that. So now, unfortunately, low testosterone level by itself uh, does not mean much unless it's accompanied by symptoms. And symptoms such as uh, uh, low libido, uh, erectile dysfunction, lack of energy, and some signs such as osteoporosis, uh, weight gain, metabolic syndrome. Uh, this in combination with low testosterone has now come to be known as uh, adult onset hypogonadism or uh, low testosterone and is now defined as a condition. So low blood test, uh, low testosterone of the blood test in combination with symptoms. Now, why is it I know I've always been taught that testosterone should be measured in the morning. Um, why is that critical? So it's, it's, it's very critical because uh, testosterone production um, varies according to the circadian rhythm. Uh, the uh, GnRH from the hypothalamus stimulates the pituitary to produce LH or luteinizing hormone, uh, which stimulates the testis to produce testosterone. And the production of LH happens mostly at night. And so therefore, the most of the testosterone is actually produced during the morning. And so therefore, uh, especially in young men, uh, the discrepancy between a morning testosterone and an evening testosterone can, can be as high as 50%. Much less in older men, 
but uh, most of the reference values in laboratories have been established from testosterone levels that were drawn in the morning. So therefore, the uh, testosterone level uh, discrepancy between the morning and the evening can be high, and so therefore, it is recommended that uh, patients get their testosterone level drawn in the morning. It doesn't have to be fasting. I get this question all the time, but it just has to be in the morning. So if somebody were to, to have their testosterone checked in the late afternoon or early evening, it would be expected to be low and therefore difficult to compare to the reference ranges. Absolutely, right? yes. So if they, uh, if they have it, that's one of the first questions I ask. If a guy has a low testosterone level as to when was it drawn. And often patients can remember when they went to the laboratory, whether it was in the morning or in the evening. And if they tell you it's in the evening, uh, the first thing you do is to repeat it in the morning. In the evening, if it's normal, then you sort of are stuck because you, you know for almost for certain that the morning level is going to come back as uh, normal as well. So now for yourself as somebody who practices reproductive uh, urology or even for the general urologist, when do you start to think about, I want to order a testosterone on this patient? So the patient is not referred to you with low testosterone, but you have some suspicion that there may be a low testosterone uh, issue going on. What what raises your uh, suspicion of that? So um, according to the different AUA guidelines that are there, uh, the two conditions in which testosterone is routinely recommended to order are one is infertility and the second is erectile dysfunction. And in men with infertility, low testosterone could be a cause for decreased sperm production and having problems associated with fathering a child. So in uh, couples that come in with infertility, getting testosterone and getting an FSH and LH level is sort of routine workup. In men who come in with erectile dysfunction, um, especially young men who have mild erectile dysfunction, sometimes low testosterone may be the only cause for their erectile dysfunction. And so therefore, uh, increasing the testosterone levels in those men can uh, help with their erectile function alone. Beyond these two conditions, as far as urologists are concerned, I don't think we should be routinely uh, screening for or checking uh, testosterone levels in uh, men. Now, would there be a situation where a man came to visit you where he was not, did not have an issue with fertility, did not have an issue with erectile dysfunction, but perhaps had some other symptoms that would raise your suspicion that perhaps his testosterone is low. Sure. So um, some of the other symptoms, such as um, lack of energy, low libido, low sex drive, uh, in uh, combination with some signs such as metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, um, all of those put together uh, can sometimes raise the suspicion of ordering a testosterone level. Unfortunately, as uh, urologists, we often don't uh, see this primarily. This is often um, happens at the primary care setting wherein the family practice physician or the uh, internist has already ordered a testosterone level based on these symptoms. And now the patient has a low testosterone level and then he gets referred to a urologist or an endocrinologist for discussion of low testosterone. But yes, if a, if a patient truly complains of all of those signs uh, uh, of, of symptoms, and we do identify some of the signs associated with low testosterone, then getting a testosterone level in those patients is totally reasonable. So other than symptoms, uh, are there any risks to having low testosterone? So um, 
there are uh, unfortunately studies showing that uh, there's a, a great uh, VA study done back in 2006, which showed that men with low testosterone uh, in the uh, VA population actually ended up dying sooner. Uh, so once you discuss this with the patients, they often get very scared. But I think the uh, low testosterone in uh, especially elderly men is probably a marker of some underlying disease, such as uh, metabolic syndrome, uh, diabetes, obesity, uh, osteoporosis. And osteoporosis can lead to increased risk of uh, falls and fractures, I think leading to increased uh, risk of death. So testosterone itself is probably not uh, leading to um, the uh, death per se, uh, but having other comorbidities and low testosterone acting as a marker for those comorbidities is probably what's indicating uh, the increased risk of mortality. So when patients ask me, doc, is it okay for me to live with low testosterone for the rest of my life? As long as it's not terribly low, like less than 200 nanograms per deciliter, I think it's totally reasonable if they don't have symptoms. But if it's less than 200, you want to look for other comorbid conditions that could be bringing the testosterone level so low. So one other practical question I'm going to ask you, there are um, various forms of testosterone that could be measured uh, in the serum, as well as uh, other um, other things that patients, I've even had patients ask me to measure uh, DHT, to measure DHEA. Uh, what are the, first of all, what testosterone should we be measuring? And is there any value to measuring uh uh, other forms of testosterone or um, other uh, precursors sure. uh, along sure. the way? So um, there's lots of controversy with uh, testosterone testing. The CDC has actually uh, put forth a huge effort to try and standardize testosterone testing uh, using LCMS. So traditionally, uh, testosterones were tested initially actually using radioimmunoassays and then with ELISAs. And now at least uh, the two large commercial laboratories have now been forced to use LCMS, which is liquid chromatography mass spec, to measure total testosterone. So if you go to a doctor and ask them for testosterone test, most often what you are getting checked is the total testosterone level. Now, that's what has been defined by the endocrine society, and that's what is used widely throughout the literature as a baseline test to think about uh, in patients who have symptoms of low testosterone. Now, the other uh, uh, testosterone test in the serum that is most often used is something called free testosterone. So unfortunately, free testosterone is, uh, the half-life is very short and the measurement of free testosterone is very difficult. And so therefore, most of the time when you order a free testosterone, it is a calculated level. So of the 100% of total testosterone in the blood, only 2% of the testosterone is actually free. About 50 to 60% is tightly bound to a protein called sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG, which is made in the liver. And about 30 to 40% is bound, loosely bound to a protein called albumin, which is again made in the liver. So when you're checking uh, free testosterone, um, that's what you're checking. You're basically calculating the level of total testosterone, calculating the level of SHBG and albumin, and basically calculating the free testosterone. Some of the other derivatives that you mentioned were dihydrotestosterone and DHEA. Unfortunately, the data supporting the association of DHT levels or DHEA levels with symptoms is very weak, and so therefore should not probably not be routinely measured. 
And one of the important questions that you should ask is when do you use free testosterone and how do you base your clinical judgment based on free testosterone? So uh, the way uh, most practitioners use free testosterone is when the total testosterone level is around the normal levels. Let's say the laboratory uh, says the normal level is between 300 to 800 and the patient has a testosterone level of 320. In those instances, if you check the free testosterone level and if the free testosterone is low, then you could make an argument to treat that patient to increase his total testosterone level. Whereas when the total testosterone is totally normal, let's say it's around 450 to 500, checking a free testosterone level does not make much sense because most likely it's gonna come back normal. And the same argument would hold for testosterone levels that are very low, such as 200 to 250 nanograms per deciliter. You have a clear-cut diagnosis of low testosterone with symptoms. Checking a free testosterone level in that population is probably not useful either. Uh, what about when, when is it appropriate to check uh, pituitary hormones, FSH, LH, et cetera? So um, if patients have uh, the first testosterone level that comes back low, then I do on the second testing, I check FSH, LH, uh, estradiol, as well as prolactin. So uh, the reason we have to check FSH and LH is because now the FDA has uh, mandated that testosterone therapy be uh, given for two conditions alone, which is basically primary hypogonadism and secondary hypogonadism. Primary hypogonadism is which, in which there is testicular failure and there is a lack of production of testosterone. Some of the examples that the FDA has actually cited clearly is, uh, is conditions such as Klinefelter syndrome, anorchidism, testicular cancer, problems wherein the testis fails to produce testosterone. The second condition is called secondary hypogonadism, wherein there is pituitary failure or hypothalamic failure to stimulate the testis to produce testosterone. So conditions such as radiation to the pituitary uh, tumors in the pituitary, such as prolactinoma uh, and Kalman syndrome, or hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, can all lead to low FSH and LH levels. One of the first things that patients often ask is, Doc, why do I have low testosterone? And checking FSH, LH, and uh, prolactin can sometimes help us answer the question. In fact, 10 to 15% of men of all men who have hypogonadism will end up having secondary hypogonadism, meaning they would have a low LH level. And so therefore you could offer an explanation to the patient saying that your pituitary is not working as well. And so therefore you have low testosterone. Okay, let's move on to um, how we can treat low testosterone. There was a, an interesting debate at the uh, 2017 AUA annual meeting in Boston about increasing testosterone and one of the debaters um, was of the mindset that many causes of low testosterone have to do with things like metabolic syndrome, not sleeping properly, uh, etc. And that those problems should be addressed and that those problems should be addressed prior to uh, thinking about replacing testosterone. Whereas uh, the other argument was uh, really in, very much in favor of replacing testosterone. Um, so let's talk about different therapies for low testosterone, and you could give us some of your thoughts on, let's say, the natural ways of increasing uh, testosterone. So um, one of the important things that I often tell patients is uh, 
you, I could, you could drown patients in testosterone and take them outside. But if they're sitting on a couch and watching TV all day, none of their symptoms such as lack of energy, low libido, low sex drive, metabolic syndrome, weight gain are ever going to improve. So it's very important that the patients understand that they have to put in the effort. And how can they put in the effort? So weight loss, exercise, sleeping better, and losing stress. Unless they are committed to doing all of those four things in combination with or without testosterone therapy, uh, the effects of testosterone therapy are never going to uh, be fully seen and evaluated by you. So now let's get back to uh, what should we do in a guy with low testosterone? What are some of the natural ways to increase testosterone? And the more important question is, especially in men with infertility, testosterone therapy is a contraceptive. And infertility is one of the risk factors uh, of testosterone. And so, the, so therefore, practitioners should understand that a guy that comes in with infertility or a man that has not completed his family yet, uh, testosterone therapy is uh, contraindicated. So lifestyle modifications has certainly uh, shown in several uh, very good level one studies showing that it can increase testosterone therapy on its own. Improvement of weight loss, improving uh, hemoglobin A1C through medications for diabetes, improvement uh, of weight with uh, bariatric surgery has shown to increase testosterone levels. So lifestyle modifications as a uh, physician is very easy to write on a prescription or to tell the patient, but from a patient's point of view is often hard. So I actually strongly believe that uh, trying to do both uh, increasing testosterone either through uh, medications or testosterone therapy in combination with lifestyle modifications is probably the best uh, way to move forward, especially in patients who have difficulty uh, losing the weight uh, naturally, especially if they don't have the energy to exercise and don't have the motivation to, uh, to do many things. Now, in terms of uh, the question that you asked about uh, what are the, uh, some of the natural ways to increase your own testosterone, uh, there is an off-label use of a drug called uh, clomiphene citrate. So now clomiphene citrate has been used, uh, or clomid has been used in uh, women uh, to stimulate ovulation uh, during the, the menstrual cycle to see if they can uh, increase their chances of reproduction. And men, it has now been used to increase uh, to intratesticular testosterone. And the concept uh, being uh, clomiphene citrate blocks the estrogen feedback on the pituitary, stimulating increase in FSH and LH, and so therefore increasing its own testosterone therapy, in increasing the intratesticular testosterone, and so therefore the serum testosterone. Unfortunately, Clomid is not without side effects. It can, it is an estrogenic drug and it increases the serum estrogen level and sometimes has the uh, risk of having a venous thromboembolism. So patients should understand that despite uh, Clomid being a safe way to increase both sperm count as well as increase in testosterone, they can have some of the side effects of Clomiphene citrate. Now we should talk about uh, the forms of uh, testosterone therapy and how is uh, testosterone therapy uh, prescribed and what are different ways in which testosterone therapy can be given. One of the first things that alarms patients when they hear uh, that testosterone therapy is not available in a pill form uh, because it's a steroid and it can affect the liver, uh, oral forms of testosterone therapy are not available in the United States. However, uh, the other forms are most commonly used are the uh, testosterone gels, which are applied topically, uh, intramuscular uh, injections, as well as uh, testosterone pellets. More recently now, there's availability of long-term uh, testosterone injections, 
as well as intranasal gels uh, for increasing testosterone. Which, uh, which forms of testosterone replacement do you prefer or do you leave that up to the patient or are certain patients more likely to benefit from certain forms of therapy? Sure. So usually I discuss these uh, forms uh, with the patient and I uh, leave it up to the patient, uh, but I do go over the risks and benefits of each of those uh, types of therapy. Let's start with uh, testosterone uh, gels. Uh, the most uh, uh, biggest risk of testosterone gels is uh, transference. So patients, uh, if they are have young children at home or um, have uh, partners because they're using the gels every day, if they touch the uh, kids and touch the partners, they should understand that there is a possibility of transferring testosterone to them. So uh, young men often do not prefer the gels because of the risk of uh, transference. But moving on to injections, um, some patients don't like injections because of the need, need to inject themselves every week or having to come to a, a doctor's office to, for a nurse to administer the injections. However, some of the young men uh, like the high levels of testosterone that are obtainable with the uh, injections, and so therefore prefer to stay on the injections for a very long time. A last form is uh, pellets. Uh, this is uh, a very controlled uh, form of testosterone therapy because the practitioner administers the pellets, and so therefore they can control uh, the levels that are achieved. And this is often done around uh, four to five, every four to five months, and the patients achieve fairly steady levels. So now with gels and pellets, you can achieve these steady state levels, whereas with injections, uh, there is a big risk of uh, uh, peaks and the troughs, which can alter the mood uh, and alter symptoms in these uh, patients. So these are some of the risks and benefits I discuss with the patients. Uh, the young men often uh, like the injections. Older men go with either gel the gels or the pellets. So gel daily, injection weekly, uh, pellets, four to five months. Correct. So now that we've decided to uh, give a patient testosterone, replace testosterone, how do we monitor the patient so that we know that what we're doing is effective? <clears throat> So it's a very good question. Uh, I think it's a very important question as well. I think practitioners should uh, understand that if the uh, symptoms and the signs for which they started testosterone therapy, this is uh, very important because uh, as eager as we are to start testosterone therapy, we should also be very bold in stopping the testosterone therapy. So for example, um, I usually wait for at least uh, three months before making a decision on uh, testosterone therapy working or not. And you have to document the symptoms and the signs for which we started testosterone therapy because every man has a different combination of why we started testosterone therapy. And at three months, the uh, blood tests that I routinely check are uh, testosterone, uh, estradiol, hematocrit, and a PSA level if they are above 50 years old, uh, in, especially in men who could have a family history or an increased risk of prostate cancer. So at, these, at the three month time point, if the testosterone level is normal, and unfortunately the word normal is different for different patients, but as long as their symptoms are better, I leave the testosterone where it is as long as it is within the normal range of the laboratory. If the estrogen level is high, let's say it's above 60 picograms per ml, then you should think about starting an estrogen blocker, such as an astrozole, which I usually start around one milligram once a week, 
or if the estrogen is above 80, millig 80 picograms per ml, then I increase the dose to one milligrams twice a week. If the hematocrit is high and the endocrine society defines it at greater than 53%, then there are two things that you could do. One, you could either decrease the testosterone dose if the levels are too high, and two, recommend that patients get phlebotomy. And some of these blood centers either take the blood if the patients are on testosterone, and sometimes they don't use it for donation, and they just, use, just perform phlebotomy. Now, at three months is when you decide, uh, based on all of these blood tests, uh, whether testosterone therapy should be continued, uh, and it's safe, and the patient says he is doing better. If they are not doing better, then you should definitely stop testosterone therapy because the big risk of testosterone therapy is uh, steroid abuse and the potential for abuse potential. And at the end of the day, it is a steroid. And uh, practitioners as well as patients should be willing to stop it if the uh, effects are not seen either at three months and if they're willing to wait another three months to see if the effects are still there. But at six months, you should decide whether testosterone therapy is working for that man or not. So you spoke a little bit there about uh, the risks of testosterone therapy. When you counsel a patient, um, what are the risks that you go over with the patient uh, before starting testosterone? Very important point. Uh, the six uh, risks that I always discuss uh, with anybody on testosterone therapy, be it injections, gels, pellets, patches, uh, the uh, risks are uniform. And um, the first risk I discuss as a reproductive urologist, I'm always concerned about infertility. And some of these old men do not worry about it, but you just can't make the assumption that they have completed their family. So it's important to state that testosterone is a contraceptive and can uh, lead to infertility and lowering sperm counts. Number two, uh, the risk association between testosterone and prostate cancer has become uh, is lower now with uh, several studies showing that it's uh, fairly safe, but patients should still be warned that uh, prostate cancer is still a risk and the PSA needs to be monitored in patients who are on testosterone therapy. And number three is the potential for steroid abuse and the men will no longer produce their own intratesticular testosterone. And patients often get uh, confused by this, and you have to tell them that if you give testosterone on the outside, your body stops producing their own testosterone, and there is a potential for testicular atrophy. And the last uh, three are now mandated since 2015 by the FDA to discuss it, although the studies supporting them are weak, but you do have to discuss the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and DVT and PE meaning uh, blood clots in the legs and in the lungs. And you tell them that, that tell patients that the associations are weak, but you absolutely need to uh, warn them about these things. So six risks, infertility, uh, prostate cancer, steroid abuse with testis atrophy, heart attack, stroke, pulmonary embolism with DVT. How about the benefits of testosterone therapy outside of the relief uh, of the symptoms that the patient presented with? So testosterone is an important hormone for uh, bone health. It's an important hormone for metabolism. Um, several studies have, and it's an important hormone for mood. Uh, several studies have shown that uh, testosterone itself given to uh, men who have depression with absolutely no symptoms of low testosterone have improved uh, depression as much as uh, SSRIs have. Testosterone has improved hemoglobin A1C in men who have diabetes on its own without having any anti-diabetic agents. Testosterone has improved 
uh, bone health with improvements in DEXA scans before and after testosterone therapy. So yes, testosterone has benefits for uh, symptoms such as uh, sex drive and energy and ability to play sports and so on, but it absolutely uh, has benefits uh, for uh, overall health as well. So my last question regarding um, testosterone uh, testosterone replacement is how long do you keep someone on testosterone replacement? Is this a lifelong, a potentially a lifelong therapy, or is it something that should be uh, stopped after a certain period of time? So uh, men ask me this question all the time. It's a very important question. Um, just like antihypertensive medications or diabetic medications, I tell patients testosterone therapy is a lifelong treatment. However, if um, they they could choose to stop it anytime that they are not interested in, uh, in these symptoms anymore, when, when sex drive, when erectile function, when uh, energy is not as important to them anymore, I tell them they always have the option of stopping it. Uh, but it's important to tell them that uh, once you stop it, your body may not recover to produce the same testosterone that it did prior to starting therapy. And so there's always a risk of testis atrophy and the body not picking up to produce the same testosterone that they had before starting it. So yes, it's a lifelong tr therapy. And more importantly, it's a lifelong commitment on the part of the patients to do their part as well uh, with lifestyle modifications when they are on testosterone therapy uh, to make sure that they get the maximum benefit out of uh, testosterone therapy. Are there any, is there any data on patients, let's say you have a, a man who starts testosterone replacement when he's 50 years of age. Mm -hmm. What is the likelihood that when he's 60 years of age or 70 years of age, he'll still be on testosterone replacement? So uh, the compliance with testosterone therapy is actually fairly poor. Uh, patients uh, do not uh, stay on lifelong testosterone therapy uh, because of the, the constant need for therapy, such as weekly injections, daily gels, and uh, the compliance with pellets is a little bit better because it's administered in the uh, doctor's office and the patients don't mind visiting the physician every four to five months to get their pellets changed. So the compliance is about 20 to 25%. So the guy that starts at, at with testosterone therapy at 50, the chance of him staying at 60 is probably around 20 to 25%. But, uh, but there are many reasons why patients come off of testosterone therapy, some of which unfortunately include costs, insurance coverage, and obviously the uh, difficulty with uh, administration. So the last question I'm going to ask you is, it's almost a little bit unfair because we can do an entire podcast on this. But I just briefly would like to get your thoughts on testosterone replacement in the patient with prostate cancer or the patient who's been treated for prostate cancer. Okay. Um, yes, we can do a whole pod podcast on it. So um, I think the uh, association between testosterone and prostate cancer uh, probably started from the 1940s, wherein uh, the, uh, in men who had metastatic prostate cancer uh, castration was performed in the castration and uh, prostate cancer got better. And ever since then, testosterone therapy, unfortunately, has had a, a bad association with prostate cancer. Now, however, however, there's many studies showing that testosterone therapy is safe in uh, men with prostate cancer, although for urologists, we should understand that it is it still remains as a risk factor and as an FDA warning in men who have untreated uh, prostate cancer. So let's discuss uh, three settings and uh, we'll finish it off. So the first is the patient who has, uh, who has no prostate cancer. 
So what do we do in these men? I check PSA levels at three months, six months, and at 12 months, and then every six months thereafter, um, if they have a no risk for underlying prostate cancer. If the PSA goes up, as according to any uh, guidelines that you have published, you have learned on elevated PSA, I would recommend a biopsy and not stop testosterone therapy. Now, the second scenario is patients who have on active surveillance for prostate cancer. I think this is very risky uh, for uh, practitioners, and unless they are part of a prospective study or a clinical trial, uh, they should hesitate uh, from putting uh, patients on testosterone therapy if they have diagnosed prostate cancer, even if it's Gleason 3 plus 3, because we all do know that there is uh, a 30% chance that, of the uh, prostate cancer being upgraded on final pathology. Now, the third situation is when the prostate cancer has been treated either with a radical prostatectomy or with radiation therapy. If they've been treated with radical prostatectomy and if the PSA is uh, undetectable at three months, then uh, we should be safe in starting testosterone therapy. And obviously with the risk that there is a chance of uh, biochemical recurrence, but several studies have now shown the risk of patients on testosterone therapy uh, for biochemical recurrence is not much higher than otherwise. Obviously, if they have adverse pathologic effects on the final pathology, such as seminal vesicle invasion, Gleason 9 disease, positive margins, their risk of biochemical recurrence is higher, and starting testosterone on these men is probably more risky than men who have favorable pathologies. The last is patients who've had radiation therapy. So radiation therapy is a little risky because the PSA does not become undetectable uh, almost instantaneously, uh, like as in surgery. So there is a possibility of the PSA increasing in the beginning after radiation therapy, but usually after a year or 18 months when the PSA has uh, reached its nadir, I think it is safe to start testosterone therapy. The studies on this are obviously merely observational, uh, but have so far been uh, safe in showing that testosterone therapy does not increase the risk of biochemical recurrence in men who have treated uh, prostate cancer. Ranjit, thank you so much for that uh, really wonderful uh, summary on low testosterone, uh, what to look out for, um, when to treat it, how to treat it, uh, how long to treat it. Uh, I think these are all very important points for, uh, for us as urologists. Um, so thank you so much again, Dr. Ranjit Ra uh, Ramaswamy, Assistant Professor and Director of Reproductive Urology at the University of Miami. I would also like to thank you, the audience, uh, for listening to the podcast, and we look forward to uh, more podcasts uh, in the near future. Uh, for more information, uh, please visit our website at www.auanet.org/university. Thank you.